My daughter leaned over to me and she said, Dad, that band is really great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I said, Honey, they're lip syncing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just kidding. I, uh, I love how, Craig, whenever when you get... Uh, you know what was going to be preached on that you kind of tailored to the message. And I had been thinking about this message. It had been something that had been um, brewing in the back of my mind for, for a while. And as I thought about neediness, I believe you stuck your head into Todd's office or he into yours. And you, you said, you know what I think would be a great, mess, great hymn would be I Need Thee Every Hour. Something like that, right? And I was thinking exactly that same thing. It's almost like our minds have become one. So anyway, it is uh, a great privilege to be back with you today, and I want to talk about uh, neediness. It's not something that we end up being exposed to a whole lot, but as a church, we cannot avoid this because it's what really um, so oftentimes brings us into the, the family of God. When I turned 50 in February, the doctor told me that I need to get a colonoscopy. And... By your response, I can imagine some of you have either had one or several or know you will at some point. And the thought of somebody snaking a probe through my intestines with a video camera. Um, And I believe that there are some places that a camera should never go. And there should never be this DVD in your library at home that says, uh, you know, kids, we couldn't afford to go rafting down the Rio Grande. But let's all sit in the living room and watch uh, the miracle, which is daddy's colon together. We know we're running out of entertainment when we find that amusing and and entertaining. But the Lord, does he not search the mind and the heart? As Jeremiah says, I search the heart, I search the mind. He's constantly probing, isn't he? And I love the idea, the imagery that we get in the Narnia series of of Aslan, the, the lion. Because even when we can't see him, We're reminded that he's on the move. We're reminded that he's constantly moving. And even when we think there's nothing happening, something is happening. We have to hold on to that. And I love the fact that when we get into the narrative that we're going to look at this morning, that Christ, again, is on the move. And let's turn together to John chapter 5, if you will. If you haven't brought your your sword with you today, they will be on on the screen. John chapter 5, the Gospel of John, according to John. I'm going to read from verse 1, and I'm going to end at verse 9, if you would follow together with me. John 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, paralyzed. One who, had, who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. We see in the very first verse that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast. The festival, we don't know which one, 
A lot of commentators think it's Passover because he had been to Passover on other occasions. The festival was in full swing on the Temple Mount. Uh, The priests in their finest linens, the Pharisees with their long robes, their tassels, the Sadducees who are ever-present guarding over the precinct of the temple, which was their jurisdiction. They were making sure that the pilgrims, and perhaps the, the city swelled to over a million people during the feasts in Jerusalem to come to the temple. The, the priests, the Sadducees, were looking over the crowds, making sure that the foreign currency was being exchanged for the exact amount in temple currency. The smell of animals being sacrificed, the burning of flesh, incense, smoke, the sound of the shofar, the dancing, all in remembrance, looking back to God's faithfulness, but also looking forward to the anticipation of Messiah arrival and deliverance. And what I love about the narratives in Scripture is that we see, it, we see one thing happening, that the, the activities of the feast, and then we look at something else, much more obscure, that's taking place that is not nearly with all the trappings of a party we see just a stone's throw away that God made flesh, pays a visit to Bethesda or Bethsaida. And by the way, it means house of mercy. Where else would God be except the house of mercy? Because wherever he is, there is mercy. And as we look in the narrative, there is only the mercy of others as the, as the man we believe probably paralyzed since he couldn't make it into the water when it was stirred up. Only the mercy of others who would be willing to assist this man who was sick and who was, with, who was weak. And I find the irony amazing here is that we have people who are physically able-bodied, who made a required pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe a ritual as old as Moses in anticipation of Messiah's coming. And again, looking back to what Yahweh had done to deliver them and making sure that they, rem- they remembered his provision. Following the letter of the law but perhaps blind, perhaps paralyzed in another sense to the one who came to fulfill it. In verse 3, we're suddenly caught up in another story. It says, meanwhile, we have the dregs of society, people who perhaps day after day after day, not unlike those we see panhandling, or if you've been downtown on enough occasions, you see people who you wonder what their story is. What were the circumstances that led them to a life of homelessness? The dregs of society, perhaps laying in their own excrement day after day after day, waiting as hope wanes, the forgotten of society, the refuse of society, waiting to receive a visit from God. It's interesting, if you have the NIV, you'll notice that there is no verse 4. If you look at your text, the NIV excludes verse 4 because in most of the older Manuscripts, that is, the manuscripts that exist today of the Greek New Testament that are older than 400 BC, AD, they don't, this doesn't exist. It was added perhaps later, we don't know. It's one of those few places in Scripture where perhaps a scribe took liberty to add a commentary. And in the NASB, the New American Standard, it says what's normally an asterisk in some Bibles or a parenthesis with that's missing Waiting for the movement of the waters, verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So there was this perhaps superstition that at a certain time, in a certain place, the water would get agitated 
like a jacuzzi. And if you got in there at that particular time, you would be healed. Now, if you were lame, how cruel is that? Is that the way God would desire to heal someone? To say, you can't move. So I'm going to keep chucking a rock into the pool and make the water ripple and watch you struggle and watch you try to find somebody who's going to be compassionate and gracious enough, merciful enough to get you in there. I think it was a wise choice not to add that to the narrative because it would seem awfully cruel, wouldn't it? But in verse 5, we get to know a little bit, not much, about this man. All we need to know, and it's enough, that the man had been there for 38 years. We don't know if he was there. We know that he was ill for 38 years, waiting for something to happen. And I pause right there because I have spent a great many years of my Christian life waiting for something to happen, for the stirring of the waters. Something that I believe would be evidence of the manifestation, the mercy, the power of God. And so oftentimes I'm looking in the wrong place. I'm not focused on what the provision has already been. I look at what I expect it to be. And this man was no different. He was sitting there, laying there, waiting to win the healing lottery, if you will. He was waiting for his number to come up. This is the guy that at the party never gets the empty chair when the music stops. 38 years of not winning musical chairs. Why do you still play the game after that many years? Always on the other side of the wall where the party is taking place. If you've lived in an apartment, you've lived in a condo, you hear the thud, thud, thud of the music on the other side of the wall where there's a bunch of people gathered and they're having a party. This guy wasn't in that room. He was on the side where he heard the thud, 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 all he could hear into the hours of the night. He could smell the smoke. He could, he could listen to the people in revelry. And they may not even know why they were at the temple. They were just required. They were looking for Messiah. And here he shows up at the pool of Bethesda. And he encounters this man. Notice that you don't find the religious elite, the rabbis, the priests, anywhere in this narrative, nor would I imagine you'd ever see them at the pool. Because these people who were sick were considered, under the Pharisaic law, unclean. And yet Jesus had delivered several sermons, had he not, about the preoccupation of those who cleaned the outside of the cup and dish, who whitewashed the tombs, but inside it was filled with dead men's rotting flesh and bones. How often had he preached that message? He was tired of the trappings of spirituality in the name of God, celebrating year after year after year. And if you do something long enough in the faith, does it not become almost numbing? Does it almost become like an embalming fluid where we no longer realize the significance of it anymore? We do it because it's what's supposed to be done, day after day, week after week. And I love this quote by Ravi Zacharias, one of the great apologists of our day, if we could show that. Such is the amputation of religion that pays homage to God, but, we'd be, but would be the most surprised if God were ever to show up. And that's me. If God shows up, I'm actually shocked. But the thing about him showing up is that he doesn't show up the way I expect him to. That wouldn't require faith. But he shows up. He's on the move. And here is God asking the question which reverberates throughout the centuries and reverberates today in our high schools, colleges, universities, in the halls of philosophy, philosophy, anthropology, and theology. And this question in verse 6, do you wish to get well? Do you want to be whole? And then philosophy takes over 
And everybody comes into this life and develops over time a philosophy. We call it a worldview. What is life about? Why am I here? Can everything, is everything around me, even my own life, the product of time, chance, chemicals, and no supervision? Is that why I'm here? Is it randomness? Because my life would be random. My life would be basically an accident, a fluke of nature. Where am I headed? Is there life after death? Is there someone to whom I'll be accountable to after I die? Will the lights go out, party's over, annihilation, soul sleep? What do we believe about where we've come from, how we got here? Does man have a soul? Is that, is that soul eternal? Where did the immaterial part of man come from? That is the question that is asked, and that's the question that is the most probing today because it, it begs an answer. Because we are human. We are made in the image of God. We cannot live without asking this question. And we want to know, how do I experience wholeness? You don't have to look very far, especially as you check out from the store, to see how magazines are trying to tell us the answer to that question. It's a better sex life. It's more money. I was driving down, the, down Bowles just a minute ago, and here's a millionaire who's going to tell me how to become a millionaire through real estate. I'm sure that's possible for very few people. I'm not sure that's, that's what I really believe is make, going to make me whole. Because once I reach the car that I've been chasing, what do I do with it? What do I, what do, I do with that with that ring that, that is supposed to be the brass ring that I catch and finally acquire, what do I do with it? All we have to read is, the, is Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to know that we, we chase after the wind so often. In the spiritual realm, what I believe is happening in this narrative in John 5 is that my great problem is that I'm either not aware of that I'm sick or I really don't want to be cured. Because there's a certain amount of safety and comfort in being ill. Because no one expects anything from me. I don't want to be reminded of how needy and how dependent I really am. But the people at the fiesta on the other side of the wall of the temple compound, they had a different type of paralysis. And this paralysis comes on us gradually. It comes on us very, very slowly through ritual, through repetition through the breaking of bread, oblivious to the very bread of life who walks among us. In the Gospels, we see this over and over again, if we could have the next slide. Jesus seems to promote the virtue of desperation. Have you noticed that? I mean, some people would just consider Jesus to be kind of a party pooper. When in reality, there's no way to be in the party unless you come to terms with your desperation. Because that's when the food tastes the best. Whenever Christ speaks to those who are broken, to those who are bruised, to those who are hurting and helpless, and they know it, and they acknowledge it, he calls them blessed. And he escorts them to the front of the line to entrance into the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. And conversely, whenever he encounters a smug individual, he attempts to expose the emptiness, the empty condition of their soul. Isn't that interesting? The Lord offers comfort to those who mourn, not to those who live above the line of desperation. He reveals himself more often in the darkness than at the party. He reveals himself more in the darkness than at the party, even if those parties are held in his honor. And I find it interesting that during the synagogue service, that one of the books from which the, the Jews would read from was the Psalms. They would read from it every, every week in synagogue. And if you look closely at the Psalms, because we think of Psalms as, 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 as words to, that were put to music that were a part of giving praise and worship and glory to God. But if you look closer at the 150 Psalms 
they're not all about joy. In fact, the Psalms contain songs of complaint. They contain songs of accusation, the music of confusion, the music of doubt, the music of heartache. And they significantly, those Psalms, outnumber the Psalms of joy. Significantly. In fact, what I believe the Psalms were given to us for, one of the reasons, was to disrupt our assumption that we can escape the groaning of this life. The same groaning that Paul talked about in Corinthians and Romans. They expose our commitment to finding fulfillment in life apart from what is so difficult sometimes, which is just to simply trust and abide in the vine and simply say that I know where the source of my life comes from. But I am being bombarded with, with a worldview, with a philosophy of men every single day that tells me it's elsewhere. It's somewhere else. You don't go the route of desperation. You don't go the route of soul sickness in order to find life. You avoid it like the plague. As Christians, we're particularly adept at numbing ourselves against painful emotions because we reason we should always be joyful because we know that God is in control. I know he's in control. My mind tells me that. But did he get, allow us to experience negative emotions for a reason? Because we, are, we know that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is working out his plan and that we are his workmanship, what do we do with the negative emotions? Negative emotions can sometimes be stigmatized as, as in, within Christian circles as inappropriate or unspiritual because God loves us. You know, it's interesting that if you're a counselor in this room or you do a lot of counseling, whether it's professionally or, or just one-on-one over coffee, you understand that some of the moments of greatest growth in the Christian life, some of the moments of greatest light bulb coming on, I see this with students as well, is when we are in crisis, is when we are at the end, of, we're desperate. We, we can't figure it out. We've tried these other strategies. We have been working out that philosophy that we think is going to make things happen. I can't get into the pool. When the water's rippling, I can't get in there. And Jesus says, you wish to get well, but I can't, I can't make it in the water. I can't jump in. Have you noticed that the physical stages of human growth are a lot like spiritual growth? I love this picture. We come into the world bald, chubby, no teeth, no bladder control, poor motor skills, mumbling, eating soft food, well, folks, that's my destiny. Give me some more years. In our last years, we can be described in exactly the same way. And I'll tell you what, it's cute on babies. Not so much when we get a little bit older. It's like, dude, put some clothes on. <laughs> but here's where the similarity ends between the cycles of, of human development where we grow and then we all of a sudden end up being right back where we started again. And that is... When it comes to dependence, you see, my daughter, who's 10, um, I want my daughter to become less dependent on me as she gets older. I want to be able to release her. And hopefully I have, I have maybe passed along some things about who she is, her identity as a woman, uh, as one who is made in the image and likeness of God, who is dearly loved, who is valuable, who should be treasured, who, who deserves respect, and who has been endowed with dignity by her Father in heaven. I want her to be able to be released into the world and become less dependent on me. And I want her to have that foundation so that when she does get to a point of desperation, I would hope that I'll be there whenever that happens, but I may not be. And I want her to be able to, get to know where she can go. 
that there is someone beyond just the rippling of the water, somebody who continues to ask her every day, do you wish to be well? And by well, he means, do you wish to relate to me and know me? Do you wish to dance with me? Do you wish to have a love affair with me? Do you wish to have a peace in the, in the innermost part of your being that cannot be ever given to you at the party, that can never give, be given to you through the philosophy of men who have their own ideas of what success and what being blessed in this life means. And somehow we've come to equate spiritual maturity with less neediness as we grow in the faith. And I, I think that's a, that is so destructive, is that somehow I am more needy now than I was when I was first in the faith. I, I, sometimes I wonder, is that normal? And maybe some of you can relate to what I'm saying today is that even though with all the, the, the experiences and the background and the education that, that we all have, you sometimes wonder, how come I just seem to wake up some days and I go, I feel like I'm starting all over again. I feel like this is all new. I feel like I, I, I don't even know what... Nothing's coming to mind. I'm, 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 I'm lost. I'm empty. Folks, I want to say that's normal because I hope that I'm not the only one. I hope that there's more of you that begin the day and sometimes the only thing that I can get out of my mouth is Jesus loves me. This I know. That's all I know. And it's enough. Because, my goodness, we are buried under so many expectations of what it means to be whole, what it means to be healed. A pastor by the name of Wynn Collier, he wrote this, In these times I live as though God is an addendum. Far from needing God, I proceed as if he is a quaint and dainty presence. I'm thankful to have him near, and he is certainly welcome to stick around but he isn't necessary. And I liken that philosophy of God to kind of a, a Jesus air freshener in your car. <laughs> you know, it kind of masks the uh, odors of things growing under your car seats, but it's not essential for the running of the vehicle. <laughs> it's just there, and it smells good. As we were driving over here, my daughter, ironically, she takes this air freshener we've had sitting in our car for months, and she said, I don't think it smells anymore. <laughs> that, that, Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to use that. It's exactly right. There are some things that we think will cover, and they do. They mask the odor of the fallenness and the depravity and the sickness and the diseaseness of our world. But eventually it loses its, its, its savor. It loses its smell. And we're left with, I've got to replace this. We've got to go back to Bath and Body Works and buy a refill. It's a marketing thing. It lasts about two weeks. I don't want to treat God that way. There's enough things around that mask the air. Enough things around that just cover it. They're just the outside of the cup and dish. It just, there's so much whitewash out there. I want it to go to the heart. I want it to penetrate to the soul, to the very marrow of my being. And I want it to, meet, I want it to, be, I want it to make a difference in my life. Well, verse 7, if I can jump there. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now here, if I can, give you a, a principle of counseling. And I've, you know, I've been to a lot of seminars and I've read a lot of books about counseling. And you know what? I, this is what I've reduced it to. Here it is. Okay, this is uh, part of your tuition, part of your admission today. You're in the circle that's on the left. I'm in the circle on the left. I am here. I want to be over here. I do this with students all the time because in my role to school, I have a lot of students who come to me when I give them a detention. I call that a teachable moment because I have the option of informing their parents uh, of dealing with some of the, you know, bringing the authority of their parents into it and 
they come to me and they start telling me all the things that's wrong with their life when I start probing. And they tell me, and I've had students do this this week, they tell me, and, and I asked them this question. I said, what do you want? And you look at a high school student's face when you ask them, what do they want? And you get some interesting looks. Like, what do you mean, what do I want? I'm hearing that there's a need that's not being met. What is it that's not being met? In other words, if you had your choice, where would you want to be? If you had the power to manipulate your circumstances so you could be not here, but here. And in between, there's this path, or I call it a strategy. And if you're not, you're not aware of it necessarily, but you're working it. Every single day, you are working that strategy. I don't like where I'm at today. I am working on this path to get over here. What's the strategy? How are you trying to move from here to here? That's basic. And it's simply a means of getting them to engage with, you are living out what you believe is true. You believe that in order for you to be whole, the water's got to be rippling. And somebody's got to carry you in, but you're a victim. You don't have anybody to help you. And those of you that are counseling, I think you understand what I'm talking about. Because I ask myself the same question. I go, my heart seems sick today. I don't have a temperature, but if somebody put a dipstick into my heart and pulled it up, there's nothing. I'm, court, I'm a court low. There's something wrong. And, I, and so my mind begins to spin. How do I get over here? What is it that I got to do to get over here? So I'll go to a festival. I'll go to a feast and I'll party with all the other Christians who seem to have it all together. They seem to be having a good time. And I oftentimes ask students, is your strategy working? How's that working for you? Because nine times out of ten, I never hear the word, I think God is trying to break me of an addiction to self. I wouldn't have said that in high school. (laughs) I think my parents would have fallen over if they'd asked me that question. Excuse me? I didn't know you could put that into words. I never hear that. It's like, I'm just hitting a, a wall. I can't get past this wall, and I... I don't know what to do, so I'm, but you're doing something because we like choice. We like to know we have options. We like to know that there's something in my power to get out of my present condition, my paralysis of soul, of spirit. I'm not happy. I don't know why. I'm angry, and I don't know why, but I, I know there's a better place. And it's over here. And more often than not, opportunities for spiritual maturity come out of those times when our plan isn't working. We're stuck been paralyzed for 38 years. How many times had this man attempted to get into the water if, in fact, that was the reason, because it stirred? How many times had he tried to roll himself? How many times do I hold on to the strategies for spiritual healing, even though they fail to satisfy or fill the longing in my soul for communion with the Father? Because that's what I'm looking for. If we look at the chapters preceding this narrative in John 5, Micah, if we could put that up on the screen. Look at, what, look at what's going on here. John chapter 3, who does he encounter? Nicodemus, religious but clueless. Does that, that, does that express a little bit where we're at today in our pluralistic culture? Everything goes. You ever walk into Barnes & Noble? You ever walk into Borders? What kind of books are sitting there on the display table? You name it. We are into the smoothie of religions today. You add a few strawberries of Eastern mysticism. You add a few strawberries of Zen. You add a few strawberries of pantheism, of agnosticism, of atheism. Put a little Richard Dawkins in there. Hit frappe. Drink it. Because everybody's got a little piece, but nobody has it all. That's the philosophy today. There is nobody who has all the truth. Because we believe in the virtue of tolerance. 
But isn't it ironic that, that truth is by its very nature intolerant, exclusive, and narrow? It wouldn't be truth otherwise. I always believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. If I believe 2 plus 2 equals 5, I would be considered intolerant today. Or I would be considered tolerant. It's intolerant to think it means it equals 4. Nicodemus, confused. What does it mean to be born again? I've got to go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus said, you a teacher of Israel? And you don't get it? What are you, you've been reading the prophets. You've been reading the, 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 the book of Moses. What are, you, what are you been reading? Are you blind? And he was. But yet he's a great teacher. Samaritan woman. She had had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. And Jesus said, I want to give you something to satisfy and quench the thirst in your soul because you've been looking for men to meet that need. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, drink deeply. He meets her at the well. And what is her first comment? Well, our father said we worship God on Mount Gerizim. She starts talking about where you go to church. Which church is the true church? The one in Jerusalem or the one on the mountain next to them, in Gerizim? You see how we we miss it? She's talking about where to worship. And Jesus said, I am the living water. I am the one, if you come to me, you will, you will, you will be filled. You will be the, 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 the barrenness, the, the emptiness, the, 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 the hollowness, the thirst of your soul that you have tried to quench with all of these men who have abused you and mistreated you. Come to me. I will give you to drink from water you've never tasted before. In John 5, we see a man paralyzed, and yet on the very other side of the wall, we see people partying. Who is the man who is ready to enter the kingdom? It's the man that's been laying there, waiting for something to happen, according to legend, according to mythology, according to superstition. Stir the water, and i got to get in. He couldn't do it. Every day I know in the depth of my soul that something is wrong with me. Other people point it out, too. But I know, more than anyone else, and you know, too, that there is something that's wrong with everything in this world. I know this because after 45 years in the faith, when I'm angry, frustrated, lonely, my first thought isn't to run to the Father. I'm, so, I'm a doer. I've got to do things. I've got to fill that void. I've got to mask it. I've got to put some spackle on it to try to fill the hole. My first thought is, what can I do to feel better? If only I could roll, somebody could roll me into the jacuzzi. And by the way, parties are fun, aren't they? Some of you are great at throwing parties, and believe me, that's not my point of the message. If, you, if you're getting that today, you're missing it. We have a reason above all, among all people to celebrate. But the feast is fun, isn't it? Because there's a program. There is a, there's a, a kind of an order to things. There's a manual. The law gave them step-by-step instructions on how to observe Passover. There's a lot of people. People energize me. I don't know about you. I love being around people. During a festival, I can forget about my thirst because there's tons of stuff to drink. Besides, everyone around me looks happy. They look like they have it all together. And I wouldn't dare tell anyone how empty I am at a party. But you have those occasions, don't you? I do. When you're sitting at a party and maybe, you know, you find somebody sitting by themselves or you just, you're on the porch or outside and you have this conversation. And you begin to ask and you begin to find out about people. Isn't that interesting? And you begin to realize that they're struggling at work if they have a job. They're struggling. They're struggling in a relationship of some kind. They have hit the wall. They, they, they're experiencing some kind of paralysis. There's something that's not working. And you can have some of the greatest conversations in those moments, even during the fact that there is this party. I like what uh, Charlie Brown says. We can go to the next slide, Micah. 
This is classic. All the kids, they're, they're trying to put on a Christmas play. And, you know, Charlie, he's a type A. You know, he, he wants to get this done, and he, all he sees around him is everybody dancing. Everybody, they can't stay on task. And all of a sudden, he just stops, and he yells out, Does anyone know what Christmas is all about? And the place goes silent. And then Linus shows up, sucking his thumb in his blanket. And he says, I know what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And the whole direction of the, of the film changes. I love that about Charles Schultz. He can just penetrate, even using these, these large-headed kids, he just can penetrate this whole atmosphere of, of revelry. And he just cuts right through it and he says, I know what it's about. Has our culture lost sight of what we've been celebrating for thousands, hundreds of years, Christmas? Let's take another venue. How about weddings? I love this one. Let's go to the next slide, please. Gentlemen, ladies, if you are single, you've been to a wedding reception, and you know what's coming. You know what I'm talking about? They're going to call you out onto the dance floor for everyone to look at you. Why? Because you are you're a leper. <laughs> Unclean. I'm sorry, with the people who are unable to connect socially, please come out. The people who can't make relationships work, come on out. And by the time I've gone to enough weddings, I started to spend most of that time in the bathroom. I, uh, I really didn't, I, I'm serious, I just did not want to go. I didn't want somebody to fling the garter so that I could jump into a pile with a bunch of other losers <laughs> scrambling for a piece of this woman's undergarments. I did not want to do that. <laughs> and ladies, the bouquet, maybe, you, maybe, I'm not a woman. I can't say, women, you don't enjoy that kind of thing. But I've seen the looks on the faces of the women who have been called out. It's like they just kind of come out of the shadows. And if, they, if you don't come out willingly, somebody's going to go, oh, come on. They're always the married people saying that. I think that's kind of how it feels sometimes. Let's, get, let's call those people out. Let's... You know, because we've, we've kind of lost the sense of, you know, where is, where is dignity? Where is, where is inherent worth come from? Um, they're the needy people. Those are the needy people. The married people have got the relationship. They're connecting. They're on a deeper level. We're still floundering on the love boat. The love boat has been hit a reef, so to speak. And I'm on my second time around single, so I know what I'm talking about. Okay? It doesn't get any easier, by the way. It's very, very difficult because you feel like, am I not whole? Is there something wrong with me? Every single in this room has to ask themselves that question. But it leads us back to the truth. It leads us back to who am I? Has God given me all that I need pertaining to living life and being a person of God? Yes, he has. Would we like relationship? Has God built us to connect deeply? Absolutely he has. But if we're not married, does that mean that we somehow carry a different type of membership card to the dance? No. We're not paralyzed. We just know why we have a need. We're much more aware, perhaps. So here's the question, and I want to um, kind of wind down with this. Am I that needy? Are you? I woke up this morning and I thought, yeah, I am. I, I, you know, who am I to stand up here? Is it just because I'm, I have ability? I have experience? I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift I have? And is that it? Or is that something more? Do I believe that, that I am part of a, of a community of people 
who believe that deep down inside, and their moments of, of transparency and, and openness, there's something wrong. And even though I come to church and I can be at the festival and I can celebrate and I can look around me and people who are very well dressed and they seem very together, there's a part of me that goes, I feel like an island. I feel like sometimes there's a, there's a struggle that I have in my own life that no one else can understand and no one else realizes. But then I step into the real world and I understand when I talk to enough people in my life and they talk to me, even members of my own family, there's something deeply wrong. There's something that just fails to satisfy over and over and over again. And that's where I get back to the fact that I am so needy of him and he wants me to be. Because he wants to continually take me back to the source. In fact, I was reading the other day about the law of threes. I don't know if if you've heard of this before, but you can go three minutes without oxygen You can go three days without water, and you can go three weeks without food. And then I ask myself, there's no category on there about how long can I live without the bread of life? How long can I go without God? Some people can live their whole lives without Him, their whole life without Him. They've lived under the assumption, the belief that there is no one else. I am the master of my fate, captain of my destiny, my soul. So we get back to the hymn that we sang earlier, and I want to give you a little background on this. The one that we sang, which is I Need Thee Every Hour by Annie Hawkins. She wrote this in 1872. And when she wrote this, I want to just tell you what she wrote about writing this. Annie said this, One day, as a young wife and mother of 37 years of age, I was busy with my regular household tasks. Suddenly I became so filled with a sense of nearness to the Master that wondering how one could live without Him, either in joy or pain, these words... I need thee every hour, were ushered into my mind, the thought at once taking full possession of me. Do you have those moments during the day? I do. When I just go, you're so cool. I can look around me and I can see the wonder and the beauty and the design of what you've created. Because as we grow in the faith, don't we begin to see God? Don't we begin to see Aslan? Don't we begin to see him moving? the laughter of a child, the seasons of the year, the wind, we begin to see him in everything. And it reminds us that the same God who has put all this in place knows my name. And amazing, what does that do for us? There's a, there's a fullness of spirit that we cannot acquire any other way. That's the journey that we're on, friends. It's the journey that I'm on. And I want, that, I want to deepen that understanding that I am needy. But it comes to the point where we accept our paralysis. We accept that there's something wrong. And I've tried to figure out how to get over here. And God says, I want to meet you right here. And you thought it was this. But I'm, let me tell you, I'm giving of myself to you. I am mercy. I am grace. I am compassion. I am the bread. I am the living water. Come to me. Come to me. And as I looked at that sermon, I thought... We don't write like that anymore. We try. But sermons like this are penetrating. Just that longing of spirit that a woman just had to write it down. The language of neediness seems to be lost among us today, even among our Christian gatherings. I think in Psalm 107, verse 9, it was put really well. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Why do you come to church? Why are you here? Is it because you're supposed to be here? It's it's another step along the way to earning God's favor? Or have you been caught up in the rhythm of desperation? And you realize, I want to be around other desperate people, not losers. 
I'm not talking about losers. I'm talking about people who understand and understand the rhythm of desperation, who say, I have experienced and I understand paralysis, but I know where I can find life. And I want to be around people who have found it too. And I want to encourage them to keep going because we are not getting this from our culture today. So in closing, I just want, I want to do something. Instead of praying, I want, to just, I want us to sing together, and I'd like to lead you in just the chorus, which is, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Can we do that together? And I hope I get the right key. Here we go. Sing with me. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. Amen. You're dismissed.